Bible study, everybody. Good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Let's take a few moments and pray, and we'll ask God's blessing and stuff, and then we'll get going with the Bible study. So let's pray. Father, thanks for just a time to meet, a place to meet. We thank you, God, for the time to gather in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your power here. We thank you for your revelation. And we ask, God, that we would be open to receive all that you want to pour out. We want to know you more. We want to see you more. And, God, through that process, I pray that we would know ourselves a little bit more, too. So, God, tonight, uh, I pray that we'd be open. I pray that we would be ready to receive. And I ask, God, that you'd pour out. Uh, we welcome you to our midst. We welcome you here, now. And we ask that you'd have your way. I pray that we could lay aside some preconceived notions. I pray we could lay aside some things that maybe would get in the way of something new that we need to hear or we need to apply to our lives. And I pray that we would be open. Open. So have your way, God. Speak. Reveal. Impart. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S P E A K P I P E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. Could be just saying hi. Or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, let's open to book of Hebrews, chapter 1, Hebrews 1. If you need a Bible, locate on the tables there. Where you're seated. Hebrews 1. And then you volunteer to read verse 3. Hebrews 1 3. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, in this verse, we're being told who Jesus is. Kind of interesting uh, that there's a ton of debate on the verse as far as biblical scholars are concerned as to when. And I don't know that that's really a pertinent question. I don't know that the question of when really applies that much to God, uh, since he exists outside of time, and time is a creation of his. So, I'm not too sure uh, that when is the right question. 
I think that as you look at this passage, the, it's kind of interesting that he's described a certain way, Jesus is, in ways that we can at least imagine, in ways that we can begin to at least sort of comprehend and sort of understand. And it's important for us to begin to take in some of this if we're going to really understand who Jesus is. Uh, because the answer to that question of who is Jesus leads us into the question of who am I? Uh, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, according to the Bible. That's us. We're the brothers and sisters that were born. And so he was firstborn. And he is the first fruits. He is the one who has come before, but to show us the way. That the Bible talks about us being conformed to his image. And so if we're really going to understand who we are, we're going to understand who we are through him and by him. And that's sort of important because if we're just depending on our own senses to define who we are, we're missing a, a huge component of that. That when we became Christians, when we accepted Jesus into our life, when we invited him in to do whatever he's going to do in our life, that we were transformed. And there's a transformation that took place, but a transformation that's also taking place that we need to recognize it. But we can't always see it. We can't always perceive of everything that's going on in our lives. We think we can, but we can't. We want to pretend that we can, but we can't. We kind of live our lives that way, that we fool ourselves that we see things for as they really are, but a lot of times we don't. And that's just how it goes. You think about the whole concept of perception and how we view things in a certain lens or we view things from a certain way of seeing them, and to us that becomes truth or that becomes reality. And yet, there are other points of view, there are other ways of seeing things, there, there are times that we're just mistaken, times that we are somehow twisted in the way that we're understanding things, the way that we're seeing things, the way that we're hearing things. But to recognize that those things are true is to put ourselves in a position where maybe God is better at defining who we are than even we are. Maybe his perspective is true, truer than us looking in the mirror. And I want to say that because, and, and I use the word maybe because I don't want to just tell you you're wrong, but you're wrong. And so what happens is, is that we see ourselves in the mirror and we think, okay, well, that's who I am. Well, that's not who we are. That, that's, that, that's what we see. That's that person that we see. That's that person that we perceive. You think about all the times in your life that you were just wrong. And maybe you don't keep a record of that. And maybe you can't remember anything. But take my word for it. There's been plenty of times you've been wrong. And so I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you that moment there to think about that. Times that you've misinterpreted something. Or times that you've seen something and it really wasn't that. Or times that you... Uh, Whatever the case may be. Uh, I have an example of this, kind of stupid example, but it's a good example of it because I was convinced of it. Here's this example. We're watching the movie The Princess Bride. You guys ever see that movie? Yeah. All right. In The Princess Bride, there's a character in that 
that um, is portrayed by an actor by the name of Mel Smith. That's the actor's name. Well, at some point, when I was watching The Princess Bride, it got into my head as I was watching the ending credits that the person's name was Mel Brooks. You all know what Mel Brooks is. It wasn't necessarily the Mel Brooks as a director, but that was the name that got into my head. Like, I don't think Mel Brooks is in The Princess Bride, but that was the name that got into my head because I associated it with Mel Brooks, the director, easy to remember, Mel something. And so I was convinced that Mel Brooks played a specific character in The Princess Bride. It's the guy that was in the dungeon torturing or Wesley. Yeah, that guy. So, so I'm, I'm convinced, right? And so, um, and so I got into this discussion with a friend of mine, and I'm saying, yeah, it's kind of weird. There's a guy named Mel Brooks that's in the Prince of Pride. He's like, no, there's not. I'm like, yeah, there is. It's right in the credits. No, there's not. And so we argued about it for a little while. And as guys do, we start arguing about it for a little while, and then all of a sudden it comes down to, well, you want to bet? And so we formed a bet. And he said, all right, so this is what I'm going to have to do. If you're right, this is what you're going to have to do if I'm right. And so we got the, the VCR tape out, or VHS tape out, whatever. And we got to the end, we fast-forwarded to the end of it, played the credits, and the guy's name wasn't Mel Brooks, it was Mel Smith. I lost the bet. <laughs> now, there was a lesson for that, though, for me in that. And the lesson for me in that was, is that in my head... I was fully convinced that that was the guy's name, but it wasn't. To the point I would bet something and, and wager something, I was that convinced. I really don't bet or wager on much of anything, unless I'm really convinced. And I was super convinced. And I was absolutely and completely wrong. Now, that's a silly example. But... There are plenty of examples in our lives where we perceive something or we see something and it's just not true. And it could be involving another person or it could be involving a situation in our life. It could be involving a memory that we think back on and it's absolutely A, B, or C in our mind, but it really wasn't. It was D, E, or F. And and to be willing to open our hearts enough and our minds enough, and I use those words specifically for this, to be willing to open ourselves up enough for that to say, yeah, I mean, I could just be wrong about it. I could be wrong about the way that I heard that person say that or the thing that I thought they said about me. I could be wrong about their intent in this. Or I could be wrong about their attitude toward me. Or I could be wrong about whatever it is that we're holding on to in our heart or we're holding on to our mind. But having the possibility that it just might not be true. I think it's important. Especially when it comes to the things of God and the things of you. Because there's things about you that you can't see. And there's things about you that you perceive wrongly. And there's things about you that, that you, you're convinced of that just are not true. But you have to be willing and open to say, yeah, that, that's a possibility. 
So that maybe when God sends some your, someone your way to speak a word of prophecy over you, you can receive that. Or God sends someone your way to speak a word of encouragement over you, you can receive that. Or maybe God sends somebody your way to bring a word of correction about something, that you can receive that because maybe you haven't seen it right. I don't care how long it's been either. I mean, there's people walking around with perceptions of their self that were planted in there when they were children. And they're not children anymore. That could have been 30, 40 years ago that there was something planted in them that said, well, this is the this is who you are. And it absolutely is not who they are. It could be 20 years ago. It could be 10 years ago. And it doesn't matter how long you carry a misperception. It doesn't matter how long you carry a lie. It never makes it true. The age of a lie does not validate it. No matter how long you believe it, that does not validate the lie. And so when that person that God sends or that situation that God brings about or, or that word that God sends to you, comes to you, whatever it is, that we have to be in a position where, okay, God's going to speak to me. What's He going to speak to me? Truth. God's going to send somebody to speak to me and encourage me. Why? Because that's what's true and that's what I need and that's what I need to hear. To be willing to lay aside those perceptions. And it's hard to do this. And I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm just saying that we we kind of come to a place where we're willing to lay that aside in order to hear truth. Because if you can't do that, think about this, how will you ever receive truth? And the older you get, the more you make up your mind. And that's just true. That That's, that's just a kind of a philosophical fact. The older you get, you start making up your mind about things. Well, I don't care how old you are, there needs to be room for God's truth in your life. There needs to be room for God to correct some things. There needs to be room for God to speak something new to you. There needs to be room for God to encourage you in an area that maybe you gave up on. Because the nature of our relationship with Him is that he knows and we don't. The nature of a relationship with him is he, he's got our best interest in mind. And sometimes we just beat ourselves up. And so there needs to be a little bit of room in there because the reality of it is who we are, who I am, is answered in him. That's the reality. Who I am is answered in answering the question of who he is. And those are the two basic questions of discipleship. Who is Jesus and who am I? But the one is dependent on the other. That you're never going to answer the question of who am I unless you answer the question of who He is. And so the nature of that answer is going to begin to define the truth about, the reality about who you are and who I am. So in this passage, you think about Jesus, and I'm talking about the person Jesus. You got the person Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. You got the person Jesus who grew up in Nazareth. You got the person Jesus who had brothers and sisters. You got the person Jesus who had his father Joseph and his mother Mary. And you've got this person, Jesus, who's then answering a call from the Father 
began his ministry and went about doing his ministry for three, three and a half years, had a bunch of disciples that followed him, and all these things, we got the gospel accounts that, that help us to understand that. But understand the gospel accounts mainly focus on those three, three and a half years. There were 30, 10 times that amount of time before we really have any focus on his life. So we got a whole lifetime before we even really jump into the story. I mean, I know we got the Christmas story, but then it kind of leaves it. You got the temple story, not a lot of detail there, but okay, we got the temple story. But really, you think about 10 times the amount of time that's just really kind of unaccounted for in his life. And so you've got the person of Jesus. And so if you're his friend, let's say you grew up with Jesus. Weird concept, but think about that. You're living in Nazareth. you got a buddy. His name's Jesus. He lives a couple houses down. And so you're growing up with Jesus. What's your perception of Jesus? He's another kid. We don't have any reason, at least nothing that we can put our finger on in the Gospels, that tells us that he was anything more or less or anything different than another child that lived in Nazareth. I mean, his mother knew something was kind of special about him, but she treasured that in her heart. So so he's living his life out. He's your friend. And, and how do you know this? Think about it for a second. His brothers and sisters, when he went about and he started doing his ministry, He's healing people, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's raising up disciples, he's traveling around doing all kinds of stuff. What was their reaction? And his mother, what was their reaction to him doing all those things? What did they think about him? They thought he was crazy. So if there was some indication that Jesus was some special boy, and they grew up with that special idea about Jesus, then when he went about to do whatever it is he was going to do, teaching, preaching, healing, miracles, casting out demons, all stuff they started doing, turning water into wine, all that kind of stuff, the miracle signs and wonders that he was doing, they wouldn't attract him down to try to take charge of him because they thought he was crazy. Just let that, let that sit there for a second. Their perception of him was that he was just Jesus. My brother... He was just Jesus, my son. He was just Jesus, whoever he was to them, my friend. That's who he was. And so that was the perception that they had of him. So then you get a thing in the middle of it, you know, kind of in the midst of his ministry, where he takes three of his disciples, they go up on a mountain. Right? And they get up on this mountain. And then what's described as, or what we call the transfiguration, it says he was transfigured before them. Anybody help me out with describing the transfiguration? What happened to him? Yeah, he glowed, got real bright. Yeah, like everything was uh, super white about him. And then who was he talking to? You remember? Moses and Elijah. All right, so he's talking to these two. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. You got the law and the prophets represented by Moses and Elijah. That's the law and the prophets. And so he's transfigured before them. They're like, they don't even know what to do. They, uh, yeah, they left everything to follow him. They called him rabbi. He was a teacher. They saw the signs, wonders, and miracles. But there was something about his nature they didn't understand. And they saw it there in that moment. They're like, he just started glowing. And then he's talking to Moses and Elijah. I mean, these are the heroes of their faith. 
And he's one of them, talking to them. There's something really powerful about that. But they didn't see him that way. They didn't know him that way. They knew him as whatever they saw him as. And that could be exalted as teacher, that could be exalted rabbi, that could be exalted as whatever you want, a prophet, that could be exalted as whatever you want to describe him as, or you think they saw him as, but they definitely didn't see him as that. And so that's why you look at a verse in Hebrews 1.3, that begins to describe spiritually who Jesus is. Now, what I say about that? If you want to know who you are, you need to know who Jesus is. And who you are is answered, who I am is answered in Him. But I can't see it. Right. And so you activate some faith. And there needs to be something, as far as I'm concerned, in us, that little bit of faith, but you can also use the word trust, that he's not lying to you. He's going to tell you who you are. Yeah. Absolutely, because you can't see it. Right. right, well, that's what makes a good word, right? Right. If, if all you ever hear is stuff that you already see, that don't make good word. I mean, it could be encouraging to you, and that's good. But but what makes a good word is what you can't see, yeah. right? And that's that revelation that comes forth. It's like, well, I don't see that, right? Right, not yet. Not yet. But that's the moment of faith slash trust. Well, I'm going to believe you what you say. Because I can't see it. And I mean, I'm sure Jesus, I mean, and over the time that Jesus was teaching them, He was revealing to them, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right, All right. so He's going to say that. Well, you can say that if you want. Alright, that's what He said. And so His disciples heard Him say that. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything my Father tells me to do, that's what I do, blah, 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 all this stuff. Right? But when they witnessed him change for a moment in front of them, they saw this glory. And he's been talking to Elijah and Moses and all this taking place. All right, all of a sudden, all right, well, that makes sense. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. That makes sense. But they had to see it. They had to see it. They had to, to experience it. They had to to actually be there for it. And then that would be a moment. And there's only three of them. They didn't even take the twelve. That was just three of them. But there, that had to be. A, there was a moment of change. That was a moment of revelation. That was a moment of this is who Jesus is. People want to argue. The verse, and if you don't remember Patrick reading the verse earlier, but Hebrews 1.3, you can read it again. People argue, like, well, that's just talking about before Jesus became a, uh, a human. No, it's not. Yeah, I don't even know. There's no reason to argue about that. There's no reason to argue. Well, it's pre-incarnate, incarnate, post-incarnate. Who cares? Who cares? 
What did I start out with? Does time matter? Not really. Not to God. He lives outside of time. And so that manifestation, that understanding of who He is, isn't really time dependent. And so, so the, this whole idea is that you've got Jesus, according to Hebrews 1.3, it says that He radiates God's, and I'm going to throw a word in here, essential glory. And the word essential just understand meaning the essence of who God is. Essential glory. So, so let's look up a couple of verses. Uh, Isaiah 6. This is all familiar scripture. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. So go ahead and look that up. Somebody read that. All right. So somebody immediately, thank you. John twelve forty one. Gospel of John twelve forty one. Right. Isaiah 6 is Jesus. Make no mistake. That's Jesus. And, that's, and, and be clear on that. that. That when you read that and you read about the glory and, and the throne and you, you read about Isaiah and his response to that and all that took place at his call and, and that priest standing in there and seeing that that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And and so for some of us that's really hard to to kind of understand and yet that's that's the nature of his glory and it's it's essential glory that Jesus radiates God's essential glory. The effulgence, the um like the outbeaming or the splendor of it. Uh, the brightness of it. That, that's Him. It's like what comes off that we can actually see. The evidence. It's, it's the physical evidence of that glory. That's who Jesus is. And, and, and so His life is the evidence of that. And I'm going to say this, and I want you to understand that our life needs to be the evidence of the glory that's in us, in Jesus. That's why the, the nature of who we are is found in Him. He indwells us. There's a glory that indwells us. Not our glory, His. Not anything that we produce or that we have or anything that is a part of whatever it is we are. It's through Him. And it's that glory, it's that that essential glory that is in us that needs to come forth through our lives. In other words, Jesus preached and He was teaching and He was loving and He was forgiving and He was, he, he was showing grace and mercy 
and and he was healing the sick, and, and he was uh, he was casting out demons, he was raising the dead, he was doing all that kind of stuff. That was his life. That was his life, and and that was that life that was showing forth that that was the physical manifestation of the glory that was in him. That was the physical manifestation that everyone could see. That was the physical manifestation that everybody could experience. Well, that is the expected physical manifestation of Him in us. That's why the Bible says that. That's why the Bible talks about, you've seen the things I've done, now you go do it. You'll do even greater. That's why there's command at the end of the Gospels. It's like, you know, you're going to go out, you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to go out, you're going to teach all nations, you're going to go out and baptize people, you're going to go out, you're going to heal the sick, and you're going to cast out demons. You're going to speak in new tongues, all that stuff. It's like freely you've received, freely give. All those kind of things. The expectation is that there will be a manifestation, a physical manifestation of the glory that resides in me, that resides in you. It's not necessarily a bright light, but it is a physical manifestation nonetheless. It's the same type of physical manifestation that took place through Jesus 99.9% of the time. That is the physical manifestation. Saying it. Saying it. And so it's a. You think about who Jesus is. Well, who Jesus is is in you, is in me. Look at John, Gospel of John 14 and verse 7. Yeah, power, wisdom, goodness of Jesus, that equals the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. They, they wanted to see the Father. They wanted to see Him. They, they wanted to experience Him. They wanted to have that, that moment. And what they failed to understand was that Isaiah 6 is what they were looking for. They were looking for this 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 splendor, this manifestation, whatever it was that they were looking for, but what was being made manifest was Jesus. And they were experiencing the Father the whole time. It just wasn't what they thought. It wasn't what they were thinking was going to happen. It wasn't bright light enough. It wasn't shiny enough. It was just Jesus. You know, the guy born in Bethlehem that grew up in Nazareth, whose brothers and sisters and mom thought he was crazy. That guy, that guy, that was the manifestation of the Father. How do you know that? Because it says so in John twelve forty one. That was the glory being made manifest in that day. 
In Isaiah 6, you see His glory being made manifest in a different way. At the transfiguration, you see His glory being made manifest in a different way. But those were small moments compared to the day-in and day-out way that His glory was being made manifest, and that was through His life and through His ministry. And that's what God wants to do through us. We like shiny stuff, I know. I know we do. We like it. We like the flashy. We like the shiny. That's what we want to see. Alright? I'd love to see that. But you know what's really happening 99.9% of the time? I need to be living it out. That's what needs to be happening. Because Jesus showed us the way to do this. The way to do this is to actually live it out. The way to do this, to physically manifest that glory, is to see it lived out in and through our lives on a daily basis. That's the manifestation. That's the command that He gave. Go, you go, therefore. That's the command that we have. Because the Bible tells us that in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwells physically. And, and if you can wrap your head around that, I mean, the God of the universe, the God of the universe in fullness dwells in Jesus. Well, Jesus dwells in you. Colossians 1.15, anybody want to read that? Colossians 1.15. Yeah, and so what that verse tells us is that the Son manifests, this is the literal what that says, the Son manifests the substance of God. So what matters, what is God, is being made manifest in Jesus. Who, in turn, wants to be made manifest through us. The reason that's important is that we begin to see ourselves a little bit differently. Maybe a whole lot differently than the way we have. Because Jesus expresses God's character. He is the exact image of His substance. But He also wants to express that character through me and through you and through us as His body. We are His physical body right here and right now. That's us. And He wants to express the character of the Father. He wants to express the character of God through us as His body. Just like He did when He was walking the face of the earth. He was expressing the character of the Father through His physical being. That's who He wants to express through you, who He wants to express through me. I'm not sure how to help you understand this any better than that, but his express image and, and that idea of an express image is a picture word of uh, something that is an image that's been made by engraving. That, that's what the picture is. And so his image engraves in us 
so that whatever we stamp, you think about an engraving, how if you stamp that in wax, what occurs on the wax? Whatever is engraved, right? And so that's exactly what he's saying. So we got that in Jesus. There's that exact image. But is that exact image then is being stamped through us. So that's, that's what our lives are called to. So this is a process. This is a process. And it's a process that God has us in, but we need to have an expectation in that process. We need to have a stake in that process. We need to take hold of what it is that we really believe that process is in our lives. Because if you don't believe you're really doing anything, then nothing happens. If you really don't believe it's going to mean anything, then nothing's going to mean anything. If you really don't care about what that looks like for Jesus to be made manifest in and through your life, for the Father to be made manifest in and through your life, then it's actually going to come to nothing. Because there's, there's no expectation for anything to change. There's no expectation for anything to be made manifest. There's no expectation for anything to be done. If the only way you're going to see your life is, well, I'm just surviving, that's not the manifestation of the Father. The only way you're going to see your life, well, I'm just getting by, that is not the manifestation of the Father. The manifestation of the Father is something greater and bigger and grander than that. There needs to be some expectation of what is that going to look like? What's that going to sound like? What's that going to feel like? What's that going to look like to the people around me and the places I go and the people I've influenced over? What is that going to be? Well, it needs to be more than just vanilla. Not that there's anything wrong with vanilla. I kind of like vanilla, but I like chocolate better. But it has to be more than just vanilla. It has to be more than just plain old whatever. Because you got this idea in your head about the splendor and the glory and the brightness of God. Awesome. The glory of God is this awesome thing, bright, shiny, whatever it is you have in your head about that. Great. Now marry that to you. What's that going to look like? What should that look like? What should like more than vanilla? It should. That should manifest through your life as more than just surviving. More than just getting by. And I know we feel that way sometimes. We feel like we're just surviving. We feel like we're just going through it. We feel like we're just getting by whatever needs to be done. That's, that's true. And, and those things are all true. We feel like that sometimes. That doesn't mean it's reality. It just means that's how we feel. Remember what I said about looking in the mirror? You can't see everything. You perceive what you perceive, but that doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's real. It doesn't mean it's true. It just means that's what's in your head. And I guess I would suggest we need to begin to fill our minds, fill our hearts with some truth if we're going to see anything else manifest through our lives. You think about how God expresses Himself through His Word. You go to Genesis 1 and he expresses his power through his word. Well, yeah. That's how he expresses himself. That 
that you see it there in Genesis 1 or Psalm 33, 9, where it talks about that and, and God speaking forth that which is made manifest. In other words, that which comes into our world. And so when He speaks over you or He speaks truth into you or He reveals truth into you, well, that's what becomes manifest. That's what becomes real in our world. That is creation. So, if we have no expectation, we have no word flowing through our lives, there's just a stagnation. But He wants His word to flow through our lives. That's why we call ourselves a prophetic people. He wants His word flowing through us into other people's lives. There's something creative about that. There's something dynamic about that. There's something powerful about that. We don't just call ourselves a prophetic people just because. There needs to be a flow of that Word. There needs to be a flow of the manifestation of the Father through us. If we're truly going to be prophetic, there needs to be something creative that's happening. And so, Jesus, according to Colossians, and according to this passage in Hebrews, Jesus sustains everything by His Word. And as I said, that spoken word in Genesis, that spoken word in Psalm 33.9, that spoken word, that is the expression of His power. And that's why the prophetic word is so important through us, is that it's that prophetic word that expresses His power. But you need some kind of an expectation for that to happen through you. Somebody uh, look up Colossians one seventeen. Yeah, and that that passage just speaks of Jesus as through Him, by Him, that He created all things, and by Him, through Him, all things are held together, which is being expressed in Hebrews chapter one and verse three. That that's who He is. And whether or not we choose to see Him that way doesn't change the fact that's who He is. Whether or not we choose to understand that about Him, it still doesn't change the fact that's who He is. And the really neat part about that is that it doesn't change the fact that He's indwelling you and me right now, too. And so He who has created all things, He who through and by Him all things are being held together is indwelling me and indwelling you. So He's holding the whole universe together from inside of you somehow. I think He can handle your issue that's going on, whatever that is. I don't know what your issue is, but He can probably handle that. He can probably handle whatever it is that's happening in your life. Because I know it's overwhelming you but I don't think it's overwhelming the one that's holding the whole universe together from inside of you. I think he's got it. And let that trust grow in you. Let that little bit of faith that can believe for that and believe that's who he is and believe he's in you, let that little bit of trust grow in you. Let that assurance grow in you. You know, that assurance says him... The one who holds everything together is in me. 
He can surely hold my life together. Let that grow in you. He can surely speak to this situation that's going on in my life. Let that speak to you. He can surely speak to the relationship issues that I'm having. Let that speak to you. He can surely meet my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let that speak to you. Let it. Let it. Let that activate a little bit of faith in you. Because you think about it, we kind of get a, a picture of this in the Old Testament. Remember Moses uh, when he would be in the presence of God? And he'd, he'd walk away from the presence of God. He'd come out of the tabernacle, wherever it would be. And the Bible talked about how he would be glowing. And so he put a veil on it. He put a veil on it. Because he was glowing. And, and I want you to just think about that for a second. Moses was a person. For sure. Like, like a real person. Right? So he's a real person. And yet, the, the presence of God, not, not, not God indwelling him, but the presence of God caused him, just being, just being in his presence caused him to glow. And so we get a little insight into this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3.7. I'm going to wind this down here in a second. But 2 Corinthians 3.7. Keep going. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what glorious has no glory, now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came of glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Keep going. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who has put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from the end of what was passing away. Stop. That verse tells us, and, and if you you heard everything she just read, that verse tells us that Moses had put the veil on. I mean, the people were afraid of him. Don't get me wrong. When they saw that him glowing and stuff, they were afraid of him. But he put the veil on so they wouldn't see his face fading. They wouldn't see the glory leaving. And so he wore the veil so that they wouldn't witness that glory fading off of him. Because Moses represented something. He represented God to the people. He represented the agreement of God with the people. He represented the presence of God with the people. But that which he represented was fading away. It was going away. Slowly. Because he, he represented a law that would be a part of their lives for X number of years or centuries or whatever you want to say. I mean, it was a long time, but it was a limited amount of time. And he represented something that God was doing right then, but wasn't going to last. There was going to be something else that was going to take that 
that law's place or fulfill that law and carry on something new. And that was Jesus. And so, what was represented through Moses was something that was just going to have to pass for God's ultimate plan to come to pass. And so the glory that he represented, the glory that he that people saw in him, that was real, that was powerful, that was scary to them, but it was fading nonetheless. It was fading. So Jeannie, you go down to verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. What does it say? Mm-hmm. Alright, so, everything I've been talking about, you look at Moses, and Moses speaks to us, and Moses, he'd get before God, and then it would fade, he'd get before God, he'd fade, what these verses tell us, and what Paul is trying to tell us, this is a philosophical discussion here, but it's it's important for us to get it as as a philosophical discussion in the sense that it translates into something really practical for us, that that whatever was being represented through Moses and whatever it was being represented through what Moses was standing for, that speaks to us because that was fading. But then you go down in those verses and you get down to that, that last verse that I had Jeannie read, and what that begins to describe is what's going on with us. That's our lives. Because even in the verse it says, to all of us, not just some of us, not a few of us, definitely not just one of us, because Moses was one. He was one person. But that verse speaks to all of us. Every single one of us. And the process that we're in is that we're being transformed from glory to ever-increasing glory. So instead of fading, it's actually growing. And and the reason that's important is because that's the process, that's the process that we're in. And more importantly, that's who we are. And that's the important part of this, is that that's really who we are. We can't see it, so we're going to have to believe it. We have to believe it. We have to believe what God says. That that's who I am. I'm going to have to believe that who God says I am is who I am instead of what I see. Because you know your faults. You know when you fail. You know when you're prideful. You know all those kind of things. You know when you're mad. You know when you're upset. You know when you're mean. You know when you're nice. All that kind of stuff. You know all that stuff about stuff. You say, all right, right. But God knows all that stuff too. And He said, this is who you are. And if we can begin to take hold of that and believe that, we're going to have a much greater expectation for our lives than what we've had. Because that is an upward trend. That is something that is ever-increasing to ever-increasing to ever-increasing and speaks of change in our life over time. 
And that needs to be a living expectation in our lives that we're being changed, that we're being transformed to be more like Jesus. So if I understand who Jesus is, then I understand who I am. Not only do I understand who I am, I understand who I'm becoming in faith and in Him. That everything I just said, you apprehend that by faith. Through trusting that He is telling you the truth. I mean, Paul takes the time to go through this. The writer of Hebrews takes the time to go through this. Paul takes the time to speak to the Corinthian church about it. He takes the time to speak to the Colossians about it. He takes the time. Because it's important that we understand who Jesus is. It's important to the early church they understand who Jesus is. It's important to us that we understand who Jesus is. We're likely more confused right now about who Jesus is than they were back then. Because we've been taught so much weird stuff about Jesus. We've been taught so many weird things about Jesus. We're likely a lot more confused than they were. But Paul was writing to them, so don't be confused. This is who Jesus is. And in the same breath, don't be confused about who you are. Because you're becoming ever increasingly more like Him. And what that means is that you're in a process that just keeps speeding up. That maybe it's been regimented or maybe it's been a certain meter for a while. But what these verses tell us is that that's going to begin to speed up. And this process is going to begin to speed up in our lives. We need an expectation of that. And I hope you can understand what I mean by expectation and why I keep harping on that. That that's faith. That's trust. That's believing God at what He says. Is operating within that expectation. And we know that things in the kingdom, things that are in God, are apprehended by us through faith and through trust. And so if we have no faith, we have no trust, we have no expectation, we're not apprehending anything. We're spinning our wheels. And I just want to encourage you, you don't have to spin your wheels. That Jesus has done what's necessary. Jesus has given what's necessary. Everything is in place for us to stop spinning our wheels, to actually just believe Him at what He says, and grow. And become. If we'll respond to that. If you'll respond to that. If I'll respond to that. So I want to take a few moments and just give you an opportunity if you'd like to just uh, respond to God. It's between you and Him. It's, uh, it has to do with where you see yourself. It has to do with how you see Him. But just allow for that to take place in your life. I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, yeah. Maybe you're sick of the stagnation. Good. Get out of it. Everything that's necessary to get out of stagnation in your life is standing right before you right now.
It's already been done. The way is made. The way is made. And you will take hold of that in faith tonight. If you're gonna. You'll take hold of that in faith tonight and trust if you're gonna do it. That's how you'll take hold of it. But that's something personal and that's something that's in you to take hold of that. Not be satisfied. Not be satisfied with the status quo of your life. But God, I want something more. To, to not be satisfied with stagnation. Even though it's safe and it's warm and friendly, it, it, it's death. And not be satisfied with that. But God, I want something more. I want what you have. I want life in you. I want glory to ever increasing glory. I want to see you manifest in my life, through my life. I want to be more like you. I want the God of the universe that's holding all things together to begin to take hold of me and begin to take hold of situations in my life and begin to take hold of things that I'm seeing in my life. I want to begin to trust you for the little things. I want to begin to trust you for the big things. Just begin to trust you. God, you got it. You've got it. You got it. My feeble attempt is not going to do more than what you can do in, a, in the twinkling of an eye, in a second. You got it. And I just want to say I give you thanks for that. I give you thanks for that. Mm. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God, thank you for being transformed. Thanks. Thanks for being transformed. Hmm. I pray we'd uh, make choices to believe you over what we see in the mirror. Make choices to believe you and, as opposed to what other people maybe tell us, but just to believe you for what you say. I pray we'd be open. Open. Ready to receive truth. Thanks, God. Thanks, God. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's greet by saying Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Good to see you tonight.
UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, see, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.